Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader Picked community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christoph van Houten, and today it is my pleasure to be joined by Peter Knight, Professor of American Studies at the University of Manchester. Hello, Peter, and welcome. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Well, Peter, I reached out to you to talk to you because one of your areas of expertise is conspiracy theories. Now, these theories have always been around, but lately they have become somewhat more present and a lot more vocal, at least. So I thought it good to dig a little bit deeper into this topic. Now, you also seem to be the perfect person to talk to as your research into these theories did not start with this COVID-19 pandemic, but has gone on for a long time now. So you have a wider view on all of this, and this is obviously always more than welcome. Now, let's start with the basics. Uh, although we probably all have an idea about what a conspiracy theory is, it might be good to delineate our playing field here and attempt to circumscribe or list some of the requirements needed for a theory to be considered as a conspiracy theory. Not all theories, in fact, can aspire to this appellation, and not all even, uh, not even all alternative theories can either. So what does it take? What are the minimum requirements for a narrative to deserve the label of conspiracy theory? Yeah, this turns out to be a harder question than it seems at first sight. So quite a lot of people working in this field take a fairly straightforward literal dictionary definition. You say, well, a conspiracy is an agreement of a group of actors in secret to carry out an evil plan and a conspiracy theory is therefore um, an account of that. Now, although that's you know quite sensible in some ways, for me it doesn't really capture what is distinctive about a conspiracy theory as a very particular and quite fascinating way of making sense of historical causality. And it's important, therefore, to remember that this worldview, this way of understanding historical causality has its own history. Mm. So although we might kind of say that conspiracy theories are visible there in ancient Greece and Rome, and suddenly we can begin to see something that resembles conspiracy theory in the courts of Renaissance Europe, I think we would probably want to begin thinking about something that is recognizably a modern form of conspiracy theory with the French Revolution. Mm. But it's important to remember that understanding history as the result of conspiratorial intentions on the part of a small group of plotters was at the time in the 18th century, not just a, a kind of uh, a legitimate way of seeing the world, but actually a quite sophisticated, enlightened way of understanding historical causation as the product not of divine providence, but of individual human agency. Now, that way of understanding the world was normal, perhaps even sophisticated in the 18th century. But by the time we get to the middle of the 20th century, this way of understanding the world becomes stigmatized and even pathologized. And so we need to remember that the, the very term conspiracy theory really only gets to 
begin to be used and defined in the middle of the 20th century. And it's the philosopher of science, Karl Popper, who famously develops a definition of the conspiracy theory of society, as he calls it, in the late 1940s. Mm. Now, I, I would define conspiracy theory, therefore, slightly differently to the dictionary definition, and instead point to the particular features that mark out this way of viewing the world as distinctive. And I think, you know, there are three golden rules of a conspiracy theory. First is that nothing is as it seems, appearances are deceptive. Second, and I think this is the most crucial, is that nothing happens by accident. So that everything that happens is the result of intentional, deliberate planning. And the third component is the idea that everything is connected. So you have those kind of three basic ideas, but increasingly there is a kind of fourth component that wasn't part of the, the worldview or the understanding of conspiracy theories in the 18th century, let's say, but is quite crucial now. And that's the idea that this way of seeing the world goes against received wisdom. Uh. And that is the thing that marks it out as distinctive today. And often that's the reason it becomes stigmatized and seen as pathological. Okay, yeah, thank you. Now, for as much as not all theories that can fall under the denominator of conspiracy theory, I think that also not all events that occur invite or are prone to be surrounded by a similar conspiracy theory. So what does an event or an occurrence need uh, for it to be worthy of being associated or have similar conspiracy theories fighting for its appropriation? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question of whether there is something about a particular event that prompts us to think of it in terms of a conspiracy theory. I'm, I'm not sure whether that's the right way to think about the problem, though. So on the one hand, you can say, look, if we're right, the conspiracy theories are a way of thinking about historical causality, a way of seeing history as the result, not of kind of, you know, the random interaction of um, um, acts, intentions, as well as social and economic forces. Um, if that's a way of thinking about the world that counts as a conspiracy theory, then the kinds of events that will get seen as a conspiracy theory need by their very nature to be something that um, can be seen as part of some kind of grand overarching plan. So rather than um, a particular small scale event here or there, it's the suggestion that what we're seeing is merely the tip of the iceberg. It might have just been what might have been an individual murder or catastrophic event, but the conspiracy theory will suggest that actually, no, this is part of some larger, vast, grand, overarching plan. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I, you know, I would kind of suggest that conspiracy theory is seeing the world. It's not so much a particular event um, prompts people to see it in terms of conspiracy theory, it's that this worldview goes out looking okay. for events that might be clues mm. to an underlying um, plot. 
Okay, so it's the theory that comes first, and then the events that are mashed up or are tried to be put into the puzzle to make it fix. Yes, yes, okay. and when you know, I think in in a moment we'll go on to talk about the current pandemic, and that's what I think is happening at the moment. Okay, okay, yeah, we will obviously come to the pandemic today. We can't talk about anything else, it seems so, but not just now. Uh, now that we have the basics clear, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper and let's begin with the human aspect. Now, we generally view, at least I think we do, or better, uh, to be more humble, I do, uh, conspiracy theories as being mainly believed by some uh, market marginal loons, that is, people who we envision sitting at home, surrounded by various creams, reading all kind of weird stuff, and obviously wearing their typical tinfoil hat. What I have discovered, however, and it was this pandemic that made me discover this aspect, is that a lot of intelligent people, or people, again, people that I at least would consider intelligent, can fall for these theories. Anyway, what can you say about the people that find solace in these conspiracy theories? So the data from social scientists shows that actually there is no one single identical picture of a conspiracy theorist. Mm. Um, I'm skeptical about some of um, those results, but in general, they show there is no clear difference between men and women, mm. uh, no clear difference between um, uh, in terms of kind of uh, um, occupation or in terms of right or left on the political spectrum, mm-hmm. right or black, and so on. I think, though, there's actually kind of significant variety within within the data. But what we also find is that actually conspiracy theories are now believed by a majority of people. If you give in questionnaires people a list of a long list of conspiracy theories, the majority and perhaps even virtually everyone will agree to at least one of those conspiracy theories. So I think we need to begin with the idea that actually conspiracy theories are not some kind of weird fringe belief. They are quite mainstream now, and therefore we can't dismiss the people who believe them merely as kind of crazy uh, people wearing tinfoil hats. Now, you ask the question, what's What's, um, what's the solace that people find in conspiracy theories? Once again, I think there's no one answer that fits everyone, but we can kind of talk about a few generalizations. One is the idea that conspiracy theories provide a sense of coherence, a kind of overarching narrative explanation for everything that's going on. And looked at in the kind of longer historical perspective, we might say that actually conspiracy theories in that sense replace religion as a way of explaining how everything fits together. But at the same time, conspiracy theories in some ways, you know, fail to understand what's going on because they see everything in terms of individual agency Mm. rather than kind of abstract social and economic structures. And so instead of seeing how society and historical events emerge from complex systems. Instead, they see everything as the result of individual intentions. Now, at the same time, conspiracy theorists today often pride themselves, identify themselves as being kind of um, as not being gullible, that they are not the sheeple. They are not the kind of 
um, foolish people who just believe government propaganda. So there's this kind of attitude of world weary cynicism mm -hmm. um, that you don't want to appear that you're you're being merely duped. And yet the irony is that often conspiracy theorists are the most gullible people. <laughs> they're mm -hmm. believing the stories that are, are most um, um, you know most implausible. Now one of the th interesting things about the, the demographic data about conspiracy theorists is, although in general, there's not that much um, we can say because it's a, m a majority phenomenon, there is um, uh, a correlation between lower levels of education and tendency to believe in conspiracy theories. Right. And that kind of makes us kind of wonder, well, is it merely that these people are kind of, uh, you know, ill-informed? Um, I don't think that's the case. I right. think actually it's a more complicated connection between um, often people whose education levels are not as high. They tend to be the people who suffer the most from a sense of economic and social um, precarity and vulnerability. And it's that sense of um, the world being outside of your own control that I think is one of the main, not just psychological, but sociological drivers for belief in conspiracy theories. And then if we couple that with the crucial point that I want to make here, and that is that conspiracy theories are not um, a kind of... Um, a kind of crazy worldview that is completely unconnected with reality. Instead, I think we need to understand that conspiracy theories often express quite legitimate real world grievances. And increasingly, they, they are an expression of um, genuine populist resentment and a sense of being left behind both socially and economically, a sense of kind of status anxiety, um, and increasingly a distrust of technocratic elites. We mm. see that with um, kind of Trump support in the US, but we also see it with the Gilets Jaunes in, in France. Mm. Yeah, and, and going a bit more deep into this, because and it's not just soulless, but there's also the the, the attraction of, of why somebody could come in there. And and in in the research I did, there are a couple of reasons that um, people uh, go or, or find these theories more interesting. And you already mentioned uh, some of them. It's it's the fact of, of that it, it gives the overall information, the overall um, uh, uh, rational. It rationalizes something that they might not understand. But and another theory that's been uh, uh, proposed is that what lies at the basics of these theories is a distrust or a lack in the concept of truth. But something that I, I noticed, uh, me personally, and, and, and that I found quite interesting, and I want to, to see how you react to this, is that also uh, th at times we are confronted, I think these conspiracy theories come uh, before when, when people are confronted with other people who clearly don't seem to merit to be in a certain position, but instead of, of, of trying to do something against that, it could be easier to convince oneself that these meritless people are actually brilliant people who are there with a, a second plan. 
So in, in a certain sense that these conspiracy theories, they could be considered as a paradoxical form of mental laziness, whereas the laziness is so paradoxical because it needs a lot of explanation. Does this make sense to you? Yes, yes, I think that's um, that's really um, quite plausible, that idea. So a couple of things I think we can we can note here. Uh, one of the one of the ideas that really animates conspiracy theories is this um, this sense that actually we want history and current events to be the result, not of kind of random complex interaction, but as the result of careful um, planning. Even if that careful planning is evil, there is still this kind of naive humanist faith that history is the product of um, individual intention uh, and rationality. And that, on the one hand, so you know, there's a kind of there's a there's a cynicism and a distrust. Um, there's a sense that you know everything we're being told is a lie, and yet at the same time there is this kind of strange naive faith that actually, if we can just get rid of the evil people pulling the strings, whether that's George Soros or Bill Gates at the moment, then the world will can can be made perfect. And you feel. To me, this has always been, you know, such a kind of a fundamental uh, misunderstanding. Um, so on the one hand, there's this kind of, um, uh, you know, what, what's animating it is a desire to cling on to the notion that history is the product of individual agency. And you couple that with the idea of um, uh, the, the expertise of the amateur, Often conspiracy theories are suggesting that the authorities and the so-called experts are lying to us and that actually the only person I can really trust is myself. Mm. And my position uh, as a conspiracy theorist is someone who has, is, uh, you know, as an autodidact, I have learned these forms of kind of um, uh, technological information and that my knowledge is just as good, if not better, than the so-called authorities. So I think, you know, the conspiracy theories come often from a quite genuine and legitimate place of political um, dissent that I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy with the idea that it's not that I I'm individually paranoid and seeing problems where there are none. It's the idea that actually the authorities are to be mistrusted quite often. There are good reasons why we might um, distrust political and even scientific authorities. But conspiracy theories suffer from the problem that they divert sensible, legitimate, slow, painstaking political activism and send us off on a wild goose goose chase, a a kind of, you know, a a fantasy hope that by removing the imagined evil actors behind the scenes, we can regain some kind of um, just paradise on Earth. That's, That's just not true.
Yeah, I agree. And, and, and they seem to have a problem to, to accept mediocrity in positions of leadership when people are just incapable of finding a solution. Then it, it's as if they need to find also in, 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 in with scientists, not just political leaders, but also scientists can be really mediocre and they can't find a solution. So they, they tend to see them then as evil instead of not being able to find the solution. They have to be evil and they don't want to find the solution. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one, you know, one of the questions I try and ask conspiracy theorists when you're when you're trying to kind of argue against them, which is, mm-hmm. um, to be honest, uh, most of the time, most of the time, a completely lost cause. <laughs> but but one of one of the questions you can ask them is, okay, so particularly if they work for a large organization, do you think that there are people at the top of your organization who are secretly cleverly, cunningly um, planning everything in advance? Or do you tend to think that the people running your organization are a bunch of incompetent idiots? (laughs) What do you think, you know, are politicians geniuses or actually are they idiots and or kind of mediocre people who are often just making things up as they go along? And if you ask conspiracy theorists that, they, they tend to agree with you and say, oh, actually, yeah, you know, when I think about my own organization or my own government. Um, but of course, you know, the irony is that conspiracy theorists say the people that we think are in power are merely the puppets of the real people behind the scenes who are the really clever um, manipulative geniuses and my argument is always that well if you think that actually the uh, the people that we see in power are incompetent why would that not also be true of the people behind the scenes exactly and why would you in, in, in start a whole uh, program of, of conquesting the world with a bunch of morons, because I think that would be really difficult to do. Yeah, anyway, yeah. no, it's, 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 it's good that we have the same issues here. Anyway, so to leave the humanitarian aspect of conspiracy theories behind and enter a bit more into the technical and uh, more difficult field of truth, uh, two small questions, uh, questions that obviously remain in the realm of counterfactuals of, of the what if here, but that I think also need to be confronted though. So a first is um, if a conspiracy theory results in being true or real, can or should it then still be considered as a conspiracy theory or are all these conspiracy theories necessarily false? But if they are false, isn't that then a problem for the whole category of conspiracy theories, not just for those who believe in them, but, and I think especially for those of us who don't. So that would be the first question. And the second then is uh, what to do if the official theory, that is the official narrative of what is happening, if that turns out to be the conspiracy theory? Yeah, these are two really important questions. So with regards to the first one, the the problem that what happens if you label something a conspiracy theory and it turns out to be true. Now, Mm -hmm. if you just go for the straightforward dictionary definition. This, um, as I was suggesting at the beginning, I think that's that's the position you end up in thinking, oh no, actually now I want to call it something else, mm-hmm. not a conspiracy theory, but a conspiracy fact. 
I think that this is a mistaken way of thinking about the problem. Mm. And often, you know, the, the kind of examples people talk about are, oh, you know, something like Watergate, you know, was was a conspiracy mm. theory until it was shown to be true. And now we just call it history. Mm. But there are two there are two important points here. One is the idea that at the time we need to kind of work out whether people putting forward the theory had legitimate grounds for what they were saying or whether their view would have been characterized by the definition that I gave at the beginning of a conspiracy theory, these characteristics that you're seeing everything that happens as the result of individual intentionality, you're seeing everything as part of a kind of vast interconnected plan, and you're seeing everything that happens as on the surface in the world as, as deceptive. If those things were true at the time, even if the theory then turns out to be true, I think we can still call the 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 that view a conspiracy theory mm. because it's a way of thinking about historical causality rather than just merely a theory of conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the crucial thing. Now, as regards to your second question, um, what happens, you know, if the official version of events is a conspiracy theory? I think this is a really important question because often when we're talking about conspiracy theories, we're assuming um, that we're talking about Western democracies. We're assuming the idea that actually conspiracy theories are a stigmatized uh, way of viewing the world that if officials, people in kind of positions of power put forward conspiracy theories, they're going to be uh, attacked um, and they're going to be ridiculed. But we need to recognize that in large parts of the world and indeed in previous eras in history, it's the people in positions of power, authoritarian leaders who are using kind of populist resentment, they are often most Uh, the people who are most associated with cynically, instrumentally using conspiracy theories to gain power and to maintain power. And I think we need to kind of recognize that these are two very different um, cases. We can still recognize them both as conspiracy theories, but we need to make sure that when we're talking about conspiracy theories, that we make a difference between, you know, uh, moon landing or flat earth conspiracy theories in the West, which are kind of perfectly harmless, and forms of kind of anti Semitic conspiracy theories or um, kind of, you know, anti, uh, you know, conspiracy theories that are used against um, the public and repressive ways in other regimes around the world. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Now, turning to uh, our uh, pandemic and its relation to uh, and and cohabitation with uh, the many conspiracy theories that we have seen uh, coming uh, about in in recent times. Now, we started our conversation by delineating some fundamental elements of conspiracy theories and the events that are more prone or less prone to be associated with them. First of all, does does the COVID crisis check all the required boxes or is there something peculiar about it? And then secondly, is there something 
if the answer to the last question, if if there is something peculiar about it, then um, what are these peculiarities of the COVID uh, conspiracy theories? Yeah, yeah. So on the one hand, the COVID crisis um, has created a perfect storm for mm. conspiracy theories. It's a kind of, you know, a massive global event. It's genuinely frightening and confusing. We certainly in the early days didn't really understand that much about the disease and therefore what to do about it. It's produced, you know, kind of massive social and economic effects in terms of lockdowns and economic devastation and personal uh, devastation in terms of illnesses. And there's a lot of things that are genuinely kind of unknown and confusing. And therefore, you know, like other kind of large global confusing events, it has led to conspiracy theories. Um, it's also, I think, one of the things that has made it um, quite distinctive is is the mismatch between what we're hearing from experts and authorities and our own personal experience. Mm. So on the one hand, we've been we're being told, you know, there's a kind of you know, there's a massive global health crisis, and yet for many people, certainly in the early months of the pandemic, um, there was no evidence of it. You didn't know anyone who got sick. There was no sign on kind of a daily basis that anything was particularly different. And that mismatch between my everyday experience as an amateur expert versus what the government and the scientists are telling me is, has kind of produced um, a flood of conspiracy thinking. Wow. Now, the other reason why this has produced, um, the pandemic has produced a, a perfect storm for conspiracy theories is in many ways, this is kind of, you know, one of the, the first really major global events. This happened in the age of social media. Mm, I think exactly. you know, um, that's been uh, a game changer, not necessarily because it makes conspiracy theories any more popular than in the past. I think we need to be careful about that. But it's made them more visible mm. and it's made them more available. Um, now, all of those things are true, but we need to recognise that conspiracy theories uh, about the pandemic are entering into a, an already existing environment of populism in many locations around the world. Obviously, you know, uh, in the US with QAnon and Trump and the lead up to, uh, to the elections, but in, um, you know, in Britain with Brexit um, and anti-immigration sentiment, and in France with the Gilets Jaunes and that sense of um, populist resentment uh, uh, against um, technocratic elites. Mm -hmm. Now, let me conclude and, and address not the elephant, but the mammoth in uh, our glass room here. And here it comes. Do you, who have researched conspiracy theories for a long time, do you think COVID-19 is a conspiracy? Have we all been the victim of Bill Gates and his goons, that is the Chinese bat-eating, virus-creating 5G imperialists? Ah, well, well, as much as I would like to reveal that, yes, <laughs> it's all been a vast conspiracy. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think it has. It wouldn't surprise me um, 
if it turns out that actually the the virus had escaped accidentally from uh, the lab in Wuhan. In Wuhan, I don't think that's that's going to turn out to be true, but it's it's not impossible. Mm. What's disappointing, though, is obviously the way that so many of the conspiracy theories turn to the usual suspects, not mm. just Bill Gates, but often kind of George Soros. And there's the suggestion of anti-Semitism and kind of, you know, right wing uh, extremism behind a lot of this. But here's the crucial point that I'd like to make. The real elephant in the room is not that there is some kind of vast conspiracy involving Bill Gates and um, bioweapons created by the Chinese or 5G companies. The real elephant in the room is, for example, why have we allowed the vaccination of the world's poor to rely? Why have we had to rely on a billionaire philanthropist like Bill Gates? Or why is it that pharmaceutical companies receive massive state support in the form of university research, but make private profit? These to me seem the kind of, you know, the big elephants in the room, the kind of questions that we should be asking, Mm. the kind of questions that the global pandemic is throwing up. Why is it that people of colour in our societies have suffered disproportionately, both in terms of the disease and economic consequences? These are the real things that are happening and that people aren't asking sufficient questions about, but they are not the result of a secret vast conspiracy. So on the one hand, conspiracy theorists are right to challenge the official version of events. But unfortunately, in doing so, often they are distracting us from these more legitimate and quite difficult political questions. Now, one final thing I just want want to mention is that although, you know, some of these conspiracy theories about the pandemic seem absolutely crazy, the idea that Bill Gates is planning to microchip us all with the vaccine, um, we need to remember, actually, once again, this is rooted in some kind of reality. There was a there was research done by funded by the Gates Foundation into the possibility of um, vaccine delivery um, through um, um, patches with uh, microscopic needles that would provide uh, a, a, a record of vaccinations under the skin and that this was explored by the Gates Foundation in order to get around one of the real problems of mass rollouts of vaccinations in the global south and that is um, keeping accurate vaccination records in some of those countries. Now that's that's you know that's real it's interesting um, but the way that the conspiracy theories latched onto that is so far divorced from reality that it distracts us from Uh thinking through some of these larger questions about how do we do vaccine rollout, but also who should be responsible for these global health campaigns. So instead of helping us to ask the real questions, they actually distract us from the real questions, taking us into a whole different field. Yes, yes. You know, the their political 
desires um, for a better world are things that maybe we should share rather than just dismissing them as as crazy uh, tin foil hat wearing lunatics. But at the same time, we can't indulge them by saying, oh, you know, maybe you're onto something. We need to recognize that actually there are more important questions hmm. to be answered. Okay. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you for this highly enlightening, highly enlightening view into conspiracy theories. And for all the people interested, if I'm not mistaken, you have recently started a blog on your research discoveries, you and your colleagues, at infodemic.eu. That's right. Am I right? Yeah, so yes, okay. that's our project at the moment, looking at conspiracy theories about the coronavirus pandemic. Okay, so people can continue following your findings in infodemic.eu. So thanks for this, Peter, again. And thanks also to our listeners for having joined us once again here at Picked Voices. And to you, dear listener, if you like our volunteer work here at Picked, you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information about how to join Picked, please visit our website. My name is Christoph Panhouten, and I thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.